Hi, everybody. Welcome to Wooden Teeth. My name is Jake Williams. Today on the podcast, we have Leslie Crutchfield. She's the executive director of the Global Social Enterprise Initiative at Georgetown University's McDonough School of Business. She's a leading authority on social change, and she's also an author. And we discuss her latest book, How Change Happens, Why Some Social Movements Succeed and Others Don't. If you want to make sense of what's going on in the world today or interested in changing it for the better, I highly suggest that you read this book. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Leslie Crutchfield. Leslie Crutchfield, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So you've written a few books, and I want to jump right in by talking about your latest one, How Change Happens. In it, you try to uh, discern the factors that cause some social movements to succeed while others fail. And I wanted to read something that you wrote in it, in which you try to, quote, embrace the dissonance, unquote, of our age. And the excerpt that kind of struck me was the following. How could society simultaneously grow more gay, stockpile unprecedented caches of guns, quit smoking, stop drunk driving, and remove toxins from the air that destroy the ozone, only later to fail to cap carbon emissions in any meaningful way? That's a lot to make sense of. How do, you, how do we begin to make sense of the seeming conflicts in progress and regression in modern society today? Well, all of those changes, Jake, happened in our lifetimes. That's the the first thing that I think is phenomenal to think about. Um, and it speaks to this larger point that, you know, sometimes progressives, liberals, Democrats, and the issues they care about advance, and sometimes conservatives, Tea Partiers, Trumpers get their way. Um, you know, since the turn of the 21st century, just on these two issues really illustrates this polarization. If you think about cigarettes and tobacco, you know, we've cut smoking rates to 15% nationally on average, under 6% for young people. So where, whereas cigarettes used to be everywhere, now they're, you know, out of fashion. And guns, which didn't used to be everywhere, now are openly carried in all but a few states. Um, and we have very lenient laws and policies related to our access and ownership of guns. Those two changes happened in the exact same time frame, right, uh, from opposite ends of the political spectrum. And it speaks to this larger issue that change is not really a partisan issue at the end of the day, meaning that no one political party or philosophy has a lock on what changes are going to happen. There has been a movement of some sort, at least, in this country since the beginning of the 20th century to provide every American with either health insurance or access to health care. And although a lot of progress has been made in recent years with the ACA, you can't really say that universal health care or access to it has been achieved. Why do you think that is? Well, it really has been in the last few years that you've seen any significant progress on this healthcare for all movement. Um, and the reason why, if you look at how the ACA passed, you have to look at 
not just the policy and the negotiations and compromises that were made at the level of Congress uh, and the national or federal perspective, but you've got to look at the grassroots. And one thing that changed in our lifetime since the turn of the 21st century is that you saw actors in the healthcare right movement organize. Um, there was a broad coalition that came together, the HCAN or Healthcare for America Now Coalition. This had more than a thousand groups representing organizations and coalitions that had more than 30 million members. Those boots on the ground organized through these grass tops organizations were coordinating their actions and their advocacy, their demonstrations and their positive policy solutions in ways that really brought the power of that grassroots activism to bear on the policy changes that resulted in what we now call, call Obamacare. And I think it's very interesting to focus on the importance of that grassroots effort because when you look at the passage of the ACA and then you look over the last couple of years since the change in administration with the election of President Trump, for the first two years of his administration, you had Republicans leading in Congress and the Senate. They repeatedly tried to repeal and replace Obamacare, but they failed by a very close vote, I would add. But why every time those congressional members went back to their home districts, thousands of angry voters were demonstrating loudly to say, please don't take away affordable care for all. And that those demonstrations didn't just happen by chance. That was years and years of organizing, activism, uh, and funding that flowed to state and local coalitions, both able to pass the bill and then protect it later. And when you look at other changes that have happened, whether for better or for worse, depending on where you sit, you know, let's take the next big congressional uh, act under Trump, the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, that passed very easily through the bicameral-led Republican House and Senate. Why? Because thousands of concerned citizens were not turning out in town halls and congressional districts demanding that their tax laws not be changed in that way. It's the one thing that can really explain why certain changes have happened and why others, whether you're looking at gun rights expansion or tobacco control, the expansion of affordable health care, and so many of the other changes that we could talk about. Yeah, grassroots capacity is something you highlight as a significant contributing factor to successful social movements. Um, and in the example you just provided, um, you highlighted examples of legislators going back to their districts and encountering um, angry constituents at, at town halls. But you also make the point that not every movement necessarily looks like that. Um, you use a quote from historian and sociologist Charles Tilley, who wrote that the irreducible act that lies at the base of all social movements and revolutions is contentious collective action, not because movements are always violent or extreme, but because it is the main and often the only resource that most people possess against better equipped opponents. However, you also point out that there are movements that were successful, such as the um, one to get rid of acid rain in the 80s. Why do those movements succeed without contentious collective action, whereas others require it? Well, it's a good question. And when you think about acid rain production and the push that came to really eliminate sulfur from the atmosphere 
you got to put it in the larger context of the broader environmental movement, right? So, you know, since Earth Day in the 70s and the grassroots efforts that came together, again, concerned citizens and individual actors rising up, raising their voice, you had a lot of that 70s-style contentious action, right, on behalf of the environment, which got us the Clean Air Act, uh, which I would add, by the way, is another interesting uh, paradox. You know, how is it that the most significant piece of environmental legislation that passed our Clean Air Act was signed by one of the most conservative presidents, President Nixon, right? It speaks to this larger point, again, that whatever party's in power does not necessarily dictate which changes happen and which changes don't. So you had the Clean Air Act, then you had the amendments coming in 1990. Um, and the reason why the grassroots and more contentious push wasn't as necessary at that moment in political history was you had a president coming into office, in this case, another Republican, George H. Bush, who ran on a platform. Uh, and imagine this, in this pre-Tea Party era where you had a conservative president, George H. Bush, running on a platform of wanting to be a compassionate conservative and being the environmental president. He wanted to distinguish himself from Reagan, who had done a lot to dismantle the EPA and take other actions that were uh, antithetical to the environment. So Bush wanted, was looking for uh, ways to solve environmental problems in a way that was, you know, business-friendly, but also progressive in terms of the environment. And acid rain at this time was the scourge that we all in North America were worried about, right? Um, every time it rained, you got your car paint job peeling. Uh, you had dead lakes up in Michigan. Um, hunters, fishers, sportsmen, so many uh, people from all walks of the political spectrum cared about this issue. And so it was visceral, it was real. And then you had in leadership uh, a, a president who was looking for solutions that could be done in a bipartisan way. So when the cap and trade uh, amendment to the Clean Air Act amendments were put forth by environmental advocates like Fred Krupp from Environmental Defense Fund really taking the lead on this third wave of environmental activism where you can really have pro-market solutions. And, the, you know, the whole idea around cap and trade is that you let businesses trade credits to lower uh, emissions based on a market philosophy. Um, this was very controversial at the time among green groups in particular because you were essentially allowing companies to pay to pollute, if you will. But by allowing businesses to self-regulate and forcing that through a cap, you saw emissions reduce much more quickly on a shorter time scale and to a greater extent than they ever would have through a policy regulatory uh, government uh, kind of approach. So, um, but at that moment in time, in 1990, you had this, you know, rare confluence of events where you had a Republican leader in the White House looking for solutions around the environment, and you had um, policy solution that fit that bill. And what you didn't have was this well-organized, vociferous, ultra-conservative movement from the right. The Tea Party had not yet coalesced, right? You didn't have climate skeptics. You didn't have an organized resistance from the right that would have prevented such a solution from passing. In some of the movements that 
you've mentioned so far in this conversation, as well as the ones you cover in the book, including tobacco control, um, LGBTQ equality, um, gun rights ex- expansion, and on the other hand, uh, common sense gun reform. These are all movements, the ones I just mentioned so far, that don't really have a singular uh, leader or you know a recognized face that is associated, I would argue, um, with the movement. There are other movements, like the Civil Rights Movement in the 60s, who obviously had a prominent leader, among others, um, in Martin Luther King Jr. Do movements need leaders, or um, should leadership be more dispersed? Well, certainly movements need leaders, and the successful movements have leaders, great leaders, I would say, but they have a distinctive leadership quality, and it's something that we call leaderful um, that came out in our research. Um, The other thing I would just say that I think media and influencers need movements to have that single face, that Martin Luther King um, kind of iconic to, to ground the story around. But the reality, even in the civil rights movement, was that that was a leaderful movement. And, you know, when you look at how uh, the investment in leaders all the way out to the ground level, um, Rosa Parks, for instance, if you get into civil rights movement history, you know, it was not accident that Rosa Parks stood up at the back of that bus. She had been groomed since she was a teenager um, and was a well-spoken, educated uh, kind of case to bring forward uh, an NAACP and all of the um, advocacy groups behind working to find um, individuals to stand up and be kind of that grassroots voice. So there's a lot of behind the scenes uh, work grooming leaders across the movement. And to this larger point, the successful movements generally don't have that one uh, charismatic singular leader. They've pushed power and authority out to grassroots to local chapters. Um, And this is done both in spirit and in very practical ways, right? So like you said, you think about how did we get LGBT marriage equality? Who's who's the Martin Luther King of that? Many people in mainstream America would not be able to tell you that Evan Wilson, for instance, is one of the key architects behind the marriage equality movement, even though, you know, he wrote his Harvard Law School thesis on it and spent 20 years advocating for this They were successful because Freedom to Marry, the coalition that he put together, was working hand-in-hand with leaders from GLAAD, Lambda, Legal, um, HRC, and the state level through regional groups like the Empire um, State Gay Pride Coalition, uh, ACLU, um, so, so many others, right, working with and through other organizations that had memberships um, and coalitions at the local level who could do the advocacy and be the boots on the ground that built the social and political will to drive the changes that happened. Um, same thing with tobacco control, right? You had Bill Novelli and Matt Myers at the helm of the campaign for tobacco-free kids. Bill Novelli went on to run AARP. Matt Myers is still there leading the charge. But it was the coalition that they built with American Cancer, American Heart, Lung, all these big major health voluntaries with millions of members that were doing, again, the yeoman's work, the boots on the ground, coordinated at the grass tops, um, but, but really pushing that power and authority out to the state and local level. 
to build these really durable movements that can last. What role has the internet played in all this, this being social movements in our current era? I just wrote a piece recently on our LinkedIn blog where we talk about durable social change. If you want it, you can't just tweet. You got to meet, right? Like most social change happens offline. Now, the, the role of social media, it's a hot topic, and it certainly has accelerated the pace of movements. It hasn't necessarily accelerated the pace of change, however. You know, the one thing that's changed is, you know, in the last 10 years with the explosion of smartphones and greater connectivity globally, you know, now you can instantly organize, right? When we're just on the anniversary of the February 14th shooting at Parkland, um, the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. And, you know, immediately students across the nation, young people were organized and within six weeks they had put on the March for Our Lives over spring break in Washington, D.C. Hundreds of thousands of advocates turning out. That happened at that speed. Usually a big march like that with more than a million people nationally it would be the culmination of decades of organizing and activism. But in the social media area, that becomes something you can do instantaneously. The harder thing is, again, the yeoman's work of getting the policy and legislative regulatory changes made in state, local, and at the federal level so that the changes that you seek actually stick. So these marches become the first thing that happened, but they're not what drive the lasting change. The other thing I would say about social media is that it cuts all ways. You know, when you look at the gun issue, the gun rights movement has been so successful because uh, for the last two decades, they've been investing in and mastering social media, right? When you look at NRA TV, all of its channels, it's ubiquitous. They're all over YouTube. They live stream through Amazon. You know, there's an entire marketing machine around gun ownership, Second Amendment freedoms, and, you know, the gun control side until very recently just hasn't um, had, you know, a fraction of the impact on social media. Now, the activists are organized, but in terms of the content and the, the messaging and framing, um, a lot of that has to do with the amount of resources um, that funders and philanthropy uh, and donors have put. And that's all tied to the grassroots, which we can talk about in a minute. Uh, but it's just they're playing a lot of catch-up on the gun violence prevention side. So if the Internet is helping with the speed of organizing and the um, dynamicism of, of organizing, but not necessarily affecting the speed of change itself, what accounts for the, the rapid change, I would argue, that we saw with the LGBTQ movement, specifically on, on marriage equality? I mean, that happened in um, it's seemingly a blink when you know, even President Obama, candidate Obama um, in 08 wasn't for marriage equality, but by the time he left office, uh, he was, and it was a law of the land. Like, why, why did that happen so quickly? Well, it appeared to happen so quickly, but you're really only looking at the tip of the iceberg of all of the ad advocacy and activism that had been going on since the 1970s, right? The first marriage case was brought at the state level 40 years before. Now, the judge wouldn't even hear it, right, because of where the country was at, um, you know, much earlier around LGBT issues. 
Now, lots of things led to the point that by the early 2000s, you could see this acceleration around LGBT marriage equality. But let's take, for instance, you know, as early as the 70s, ACLU director Matt Coles was working out in the state of California on relationship recognition laws, trying to um, work with companies to change the way they saw partners in healthcare benefit packages, right? So um, that by the time California was coming around to have its third referendum on gay marriage, you have to remember in California, first they voted to allow LGBT marriage, then they voted to repeal it. And in the third round, uh, in the early 2000s, by the time the vote came up again, 80% of the people working in the state of California, whether finance and tech, entertainment industry, they already got same-sex partner benefits through their employers if they uh, wanted to access that. And the norm had started to shift, right? And, and the norm was, of course, we include uh, these partners. Now, California was ahead on this so that by the time that their vote came around, people um, were much more open to it. The other thing is that you saw really deliberate, sophisticated actions from LGBT marriage equality organizers to change hearts and minds around this issue. And it didn't just happen spontaneously, right? You, you um, go back to uh, a moment in 2003, 16 years ago, we had this moment in LGBT movement history that was a very dour and dark time. You had President Clinton signing DOMA, which would define marriages only between a man and a woman. You had 13 states with ballot referendums underway trying to ban gay marriage. The only place in America in the early 2000s where it would have been legal to get married was Massachusetts. They had just passed a law, but that was uh, under siege from a significant backlash led by Mitt Romney and leaders of the Catholic Church, right? So, so it was this very precarious moment. You know, at that moment, it didn't look inevitable that you, we were going to have gay marriage. It looked impossible from the view of the advocates and organizers. So one of the things they did was they said, what is it going to take to convince that 80%, the, the vast, you know, silent middle in America that this is something that we should embrace, um, knowing that you had extremes on either end of the spectrum, right? You had a small camp of really conservative uh, people opposed to the idea of gay marriage, and you had a relatively small handful of advocates that were part of the LGBT community, right? And everything else in the middle was kind of open ground. So they did some polling, um, Freedom to Marry and their allies, trying to understand where this 80% middle America was, and they would ask, in these polls, you know, okay, this was back in the early 2000s, questions like, so what, you're a straight couple, why do you get married? Well, I get married because I want to, you know, be committed to my partner for life. We want to marry under the eyes of God. We want to raise our children in the community. And the next question is, okay, well, then why do you think a gay person might want to get married? Number one answer, I don't know. Why would they want to get married? Hmm. Or secondly, maybe so they can visit their partner in the hospital, right? And so the light bulb went off for the marriage equality advocates because they knew, you know, we want to get married because we're in love, just like different sex partners. So then that dramatically changed their framing and messaging and the activism. They said, we're going to make love the center of our campaigns. 
you know, um, and instead of this kind of angry, going back to your point about Charles, Charles Tilley, the contentious activism around rights, you know, formerly with LGBT activism was, you know, mm-hmm. you're denying us of the right to marry. This is discrimination against us. Then they changed their tune to, wait, we, we want to get married because we're in love. Same reason heterosexuals want to get married. And so then they made love the center of a lot of the campaigns, right? You're going back to that fight in Massachusetts. You know, in Massachusetts, you actually had two dominant religions. You had the Catholic Church and hockey. So with hockey, you know, they found two hockey moms who were raising a son who happened to be a state champ. And, you know, the videos were about these moms getting up at four in the morning, taking their son to hockey practice, freezing their butts off at the rink and on the ice celebrating after the big win and normalizing these relationships and the love that they have in their family. You know, advocates meeting behind the scenes with Joe Biden, you know, introducing them to two men that were raising their son and, and really slowly, one by one, getting people more comfortable with and exposed to this idea through love. And that is what behind the scenes, you, you know, you saw as an average citizen, Obama kind of flipping during his term. But, it, you know, he, he evolved, he said, right, to uh, love is love. Well, this was not by chance. This was deliberate, calculated, sophisticated campaigns and education and awareness raising coordinated by all these advocates behind the scenes, you know. It's just, you know, it just drives me crazy when people talk about, oh, it's the will and grace effect, right, mm-hmm, just because mm-hmm. of will and grace. We saw these, you know, lovable characters on these shows. Sure, Will and Grace had an impact, but that's not how that change happened. You know, if anything, that was sort of um, a bellwether of everything that was going on beneath the surface, at the bulk of the iceberg that led to these changes. So in your book, you identify six categories that are positively associated with successful social movements. And we've talked about a few of them here. We talked about um, number one, uh, turn grassroots gold. We also talked about uh, be leaderful um, in terms of not having necessarily a hierarchy, but having um, uh, several effective leaders in a, in a movement, if I didn't describe that right, you can correct me. Um, we talked a little bit about change hearts and policy, but I would invite you to expound more upon that. We talked a little bit about uh, uh, reckon with adversarial allies um, in uh, our discussion about the uh, marriage equality movement and how several groups came to work together. Um, two of them that we have not talked about yet are uh, sharpen your 10, 10, 10, 20 equals 50 vision, um, as well as break from business as usual. What's up with those? Well, sharpen your 10, 10, 10, 20 equal 50 vision is a tongue twister, I will admit. It really gets at the idea that we don't live in a United States of America that's one monolithic group of 50 states, but we're actually really distinctive regions that have separate political, social, cultural, economic situations that you got to deal with when you're trying to drive change. And the insight is that winning movements figure out that they've got to tailor their campaigns 
and their reform tactics to the local and state conditions and be satisfied with getting incremental change across all the U.S. states before they go for any big federal or national push. The problem is in the U.S. we have this major focus on Washington, and obviously there's a lot going on here in Washington these days that draws that, that attention to those polarizing situations. But the smart movement leaders understand that it's actually out across the land that you've got to put your muscle, your, your money, your time, your resources in order to drive the changes. Now, this 10, 10, 10, 20 equals 50 rubric came out of the gay marriage playbook, and it actually circles back to that uh, moment that I was talking about uh, previously when leaders of the marriage equality were coming together in 2003 to figure out what are they going to do. They were on the rocks with DOMA and all these ballot referendums underway trying to ban gay marriage. And, and they said, okay, we're losing federally. We're losing on so many uh, state levels. What could we get done? And they said, let's take – what if we just took 10 states and we actually tried to go – for full marriage. We'll defend the marriage bill in um, Massachusetts. We'll go down to New York. There's a lot of progressives in New York. Maybe we can get full marriage there. Then we'll take 10 states and we'll just try and go for civil unions. They're separate. They're not quite equal, but it's a lot better than what we've got. And we'll take 10 states and go for relationship recognition laws. And then we'll take the balance, almost half the U.S. states, and not even try to do anything related to marriage. We'll just try and take the discriminatory laws off the books, right? So the idea was some of us will go to Texas and they'll try and retract some of the sodomy laws that remain on the books. And some of us will go to New York and work on full marriage, right? The idea is that if you can get each state to take one baby step forward towards equality, towards tolerance, then you can get this groundswell of movement so that by the time the Supreme Court was hearing that landmark case in 2015, you already had all this momentum going to the state level. Another, you know, movement that does this extraordinarily well is the gun rights movement. And, you know, they, they care about a lot about the Second Amendment, but it's really the Tenth Amendment that defines which way the policy pendulum is going to swing in our country, right? Because the 10th Amendment is the one that pushes most of the power out to the states and reserves very few powers for the feds. So the NRA, since the 1990s, as it's been building up its grassroots, was going for state preemption laws so that now in all but a handful of U.S. states, you have preemption laws that say you can't tighten up gun laws anything above what we've set at this minimum at the state level, and by the way, they're very lenient at the state level, um, and, and really cut off local activism uh, and cut off gun control advocates at their, their knees. Um, that was a deliberate strategy. In fact, they stayed away from trying to bring any cases to the Supreme Court for a very long time because they were worried that um, there would not be a ruling on the side of gun rights um, and Second Amendment freedom ownership. So, so they they stayed away from that until the 2018 Heller case. Uh, tobacco control, same thing. We can talk about at the state level passing state excise taxes to make expensive, make packs of cigarettes more expensive. That put it out of reach of young people. Uh, also generated re generated revenue for public health and uh, tobacco control goals. And what about the uh, break from business as usual attribute? business as usual is all about the role that companies and the private sector play in these movements. 
you know, we tried to move beyond that us versus them contentious framing. Certainly in some movements, you, you're pitting advocates against enemies, right? It's tobacco control versus Philip Morris and the tobacco industry. In gun control, it's gun violence prevention advocates against um, the gun lobby, including the NRA and the manufacturers, right? So you have these true um, opponents. And in other movements, in fact, I would argue in all movements, though, you see the private sector playing really nuanced and different roles. You know, we talked about in gay marriage how the advocates were working with corporate big employers, you know, in finance, entertainment, and tech to change their policies to recognize same-sex partners. You know, so when Bank of America decides to recognize same-sex partner, that impacts 250,000 employees. And and you see this more and more in the headlines today after the Parkland shooting. Walmart and Dick's Sporting Goods saying they're no longer going to sell assault-style weapons, raising the age voluntarily at which they could, um, which they would sell firearms so that young people wouldn't have as easy access to them. You know, these are big decisions that affect the bottom line. Um, when Dick's Sporting Goods made that decision, they took a, a sales hit, right? And they got a lot of boycotts and gun owners and NRA members protested. Overall, though, they actually increased profitability in the long run because a lot of the products that they sell were not necessarily high-margin things like ammunition they stopped selling. So so these companies, and I'm not saying they're completely altruistic, they do make these decisions from points of passion, but they also understand how it might impact profit. Um, another good example is when CVS Health decided to stop selling tobacco products in 2014 as they were leaning into their health, wellness, and beauty strategy. And they said, you know, tobacco products are, you know, not part of a wellness um, and health profile for the company. Now, they took a $2 billion hit in profitability in the short run when they stopped selling cigarettes and chew and also all the stuff that goes along with it, gum and the accoutrement. So so they took a hit, but then, then they leaned into uh, specialty pharmaceuticals. They rolled out the minute clinics and really leaned into the health and wellness strategy, and then they've regained um, that market position and then some. So um, so we looked at all the ways that companies can contribute to causes. I think you're only seeing this more and more um, as CEOs see the need to, you know, speak out, particularly when, you know, there's issues and leadership in Washington is taking a very uh, different tact. Um, you saw companies banding together with mayors to say, you know, in the climate issue, we're sticking with our carbon cut um, commitments, right? Um, sticking their necks out, Bank of America, Brian Moynihan coming out on um, immigration issues and child separation on the border, using their platform uh, of their companies and their brands to speak out on, on issues and causes that affect Americans. And they're, again, thinking about this from the perspective of not just their customers, but their employees, you know, um, stakeholder groups, supply chains, customers, as well as their investors. Um, and I think the investor community is starting to wake up too. You know, you see these letters from Larry Fink at BlackRock um, talking about the need for more responsibility coming from investors. Mm -hmm. So on top of writing great books like this one, you are the executive director of the Global Social Enterprise Initiative at Georgetown University's McDonough School of Business. 
What's that? What is the uh, Global Social Enterprise Initiative? So we're the place at Georgetown's Business School where we believe that business can and should have a role to play in solving the big problems that face people on the planet. You know, companies in the private sector have had a big hand in the problems that we face, and they need to be at the table in solving them. So we work on um, triple bottom line projects that can have social environmental as well as economic impact, kind of balancing people, planet, and profit. Um, we teach, we do research, put, put out books, and we also work in partnership with companies and cross-sector groups to try and drive impact on the ground. So give you one example. How Change Happens is all about successful strategies of winning movements. We're taking those lessons and trying to work with leaders to apply them to the big up-and-coming issues of the, the day. So, for instance, take the opioid epidemic that we face here in the U.S., you know, we're in the early stages of that if you think about it in the context of other addictive substances, whether tobacco or alcohol. So we're putting on a movement accelerator, an impact accelerator around opioids, bringing together the leaders from the grassroots and the grass tops, companies like CVS Health with academics, uh, policymakers uh, in the White House and across um, other government agencies, as well as the state level to tackle this issue and get the movement organized so that you can leverage what worked in tobacco control, in drunk driving reduction, in LGBT marriage equality, and hopefully leapfrog so that we don't lose decades against this epidemic. And we want to do impact accelerators around climate and carbon cuts and um, gender equality issues as well. So How Change Happens is your most recent book, but you've written three in total. The other two are called Do More Than Give, The Six Practices of Donors Who Changed the World, and Forces for Good, The Six Practices of High-Impact Nonprofits. You've got three down now. Has it, has it gotten easier along the way? What have, what have you learned? Well, out of the three books, you know, each one came in succession, and as I was asking questions and answering them through writing these books, another question arose. So let me give you an example. Forces for Good, the Six Practices of, of High-Impact Nonprofits, is all about what makes great nonprofits great. Um, we looked at high-impact, high-growth nonprofits from Teach for America, Environmental Defense Fund, Habitat for Humanity, National Council of Raza, all these groups that have been founded since the post-civil rights era had gone from zero to great in a matter of decades. And what we found in Forces for Good was that great nonprofits build movements, not just shore up their organization. So then I got thinking in writing How Change Happens, what, what makes a great movement? So that's, so that's why I started writing this book. I wanted to understand um, how these big movements and campaigns that have driven significant social and environmental change happen. Um, so when you write a book, you you know you're trying to answer this a question and then as you're writing it more questions evolve so they kind of build on each other it it doesn't get easier to write books i would say particularly because my first two books i got to do with co-authors um and you have that thought partnership and also you share the writing um and in this last book it's it was harder because I had to write all 70,000 words myself um, with the help of a great student team and colleagues here at Georgetown University. Um, 
So I like to say I've had three babies who are now in elementary and middle school, and I've written three books, and I'm 50, so I'm probably going to take a break from both for a little pause, but we'll see what questions come out of uh, this new book, How Change Happens, and, you know, we've learned what drives these changes, but also new questions will arise, and um, and that is kind of what keeps me going. You know, I'm at university, Georgetown University. That enables me to focus on asking big questions that we don't have the answer to and really seeking truth. And I think in this moment of alternative facts and the lack of truth, um, trying to find the evidence and the true answers to the big questions, it's certainly what makes me passionate and gets me out of bed every morning. Well, keep putting truth out there um, because I thoroughly enjoyed and learned from your most recent book. And thank you for doing the podcast. Thank you so much, Jake. It's been a pleasure. Okay, I hope you liked that one. Thanks again to Leslie Crutchfield for joining us. Please remember to also subscribe if you haven't already. And you can always give us feedback on Twitter at Wooden Teeth Show or at our website, woodenteethshow.com. We'll see you next week.